My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Hey there, friends and listeners. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, coming to you for another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. If you are a regular listener, one, I want to say thank you very much. If you are not a regular listener, I welcome you to the show today. But going back to that, if you are a regular listener, you will know that this is the follow-up episode to a two-part episode on colossal flops in commercial theater history, in which I got Laurel Rockle from the podcast Hightailing Through History to be my guest. Uh, pretty much blew her mind already, but uh, I guarantee you, my listeners, you are going to be right along with Laurel in this one in that Oh boy, we go big here today. So thank you all for listening. It's been a, a little bit of a strange time for me. Um, I had a death in the family. My dad passed away on May 24th, 2022, and kind of rocked my boat for a little while. So I'm back here, though, uh, and I just think it's appropriate. I want to dedicate these last two episodes to him. He loved hearing what I had to say and do, and um, this would have been no different. So... Jerry Baker, I know you're out there listening, but these episodes are for you. And with that, on to today's episode. And we are back. Hello, my friends and listeners. Welcome back. We are talking with Laurel Rockle about uh, colossal flops that have happened in commercial Broadway and West End history. Laurel, I hope I gave you a little time to recover there. Yeah, I had to just like stand up and do like a few like breathing exercises, get like <laughs> work on my posture, inhale. Oh. Oh, okay. Ooh, subtle. Okay. Yeah. Bring it back together. Now, I'm ready. Now I have to I have to go back to the statement that I started this episode. There is no producer. There is no uh musical writer. There is no actor. There is no director who gets into a show who thinks it's gonna fail. They all, you know, especially if you're in the in the realm of actual creation of it, like you're getting the money and you're getting everything together. I mean, honestly, I'll, I'll take it back to my episodes nine and 10, which I know you've listened to on Spider-Man, the Spider-Man musical. Like, yes. there was a lot of faith in that project. Um, and, and those of you who have listened to the show, my son, Ethan, and I, we watched it. There's a bootleg edition that finally came to Broadway and we watched it. We went... 
yeah, there's some problems with a few of the songs and the story kind of derails a couple times, but all in all, I had a fun time. Right. Okay. For crying in the rain, like you watch Spider-Man and Green Goblin fight above the crowd and, and like Spider-Man whipped around the stage and, and like jumped in the balcony and was standing next to you as a little kid. Like that's amazing. it, It ran for two years. So when people talk about huge flops, they're waiting for me to talk about Spider-Man again. And I'm like, I have to let you know, it didn't flop. It just lost a fuck ton of money. (laughs) (laughs) Like when you talk about flops, like they go out and they are there for just a little bit and never seen again. Right. So we're going to talk some about some of these that came from uh, the West End here. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Guts are relaxed. All right, here we go. Which witch? <laughs> now I'm going to uh, help you out there a little bit. The first witch is W-H-I-C-H. The second is W-I-T-C-H. So it's like, which witch started the coven? Okay, that's, that's I'm just putting it into context so you understand what I'm talking about. We have a sandwich shop called Witch Witch, but it's just the second one <laughs> is spelled differently. Uh-huh, yep. <laughs> So Witch Witch the Musical, I got most of this from uh, my primary sources, Overtures, a musical theater history archive. And this article was written by a gentleman named Patrick Hayward. Witch Witch (laughs) comes to us from Norway. And it's based on a 15th century diary account of the romantic tribulations of a young couple, an Italian girl who falls for a German bishop and sees the two run through all types of religious persecution because, well, a clergyman has taken a vow, and he's not supposed to break that vow. And the only person who could possibly seduce a clergyman to break his vow is obviously a witch, right? Oh, no, this seems like Uh a problem. (laughs) Uh, Okay, okay. I have just pitched you the musical. Hey, why don't we do this musical, okay? Now, I do have to state that there's something about all of this after the 1980s, where you have shows like Phantom of the Opera, you have Les Mis, you have uh, Cats, you have Miss Saigon in the early 90s, these huge shows, huge shows. Mm-hmm. And you have the idea that your show could be the next Cats. Everybody is coming out swinging with huge outlandish ideas that they put tons of thought into lots of spectacular set work and design work and you know light work and everything so yeah we can spice all of this story up about a witch hunt right that's kind of what i was feeling yeah like salem witch trials sort of yeah yeah (laughs) this play ends with the heroine being burned at the stake and her lover not being able to stand seeing her pain joins her in death on the pyre curtain sounds like a fun night at the theater silence oh i just feel like i i i heard the silent the hushed silence over the crowd like that just everyone was just like oh no like and then like the crunch of popcorn (laughs) now this show was written by norwegian contestants of the eurovision song contest (laughs) in the hell (laughs) so it was pretty popular in its homeland despite the source material the source material was also a fun popular story in norway (sighs) 
Witch Witch had been developed over many years in the 80s, and its buzz got all the way to Andrew Lloyd Webber, who invited the composers to his home in London to perform the entirety of the show. Oh, Lord have mercy. I couldn't find anything about Lloyd Webber's opinion of it, (laughs) but the buzz of this, the fact that they got invited to his home, and they had this show that had been just seeing enormous, huge popularity in Norway. What got enough tension to get the juice to get the, quote, opera musical to the Piccadilly Theater in London? Oh. It ran for several weeks, only due to the faith of its financial backers who kept shoveling money into it that it would eventually catch fire. Oh, no. So did they have like shows? Sorry, you might answer this in a second. But were they keeping shows going? Even if there was like two people that bought tickets, they're like, yep, go, go. Somebody's going to yeah. say something good about yep. it. Yep. Oh, no. Yep. They were just hoping because there have been examples like that. Like <laughs> if we go back and, and talk about uh, Dance of the Vampires, Dance of the Vampires was one that bombed on Broadway, but goes over to Germany, goes over to South Korea and finds a market. They loved it. Mm-hmm. So, no, it's just, yeah, one of those things. Oh, dear. Here are some reviews for Witch Witch. This one's from the Evening Standard. It's almost impossible to take this musical seriously or any other way, unless as camp extravaganza, the silliest musical of the year. (laughs) Here's kind of my favorite. This is from The Independent. I left with a splitting headache and the spooky suspicion that Witch Witch is Norway's dastardly revenge on the rest of the world for the way it has been treated in the Eurovision Song Contest. I mean, Laurel, the opening number is from the Grand Inquisitor of what becomes this witch hunt. And he talks about all kinds of signs of witchcraft and everything and actually refers to, you may find your privates hanging from a tree. That's how you know you've been a victim of witchcraft. Are they, st- I got, I have questions. Sorry, sir. Uh-huh, sorry, uh-huh. sorry, excuse yeah, me, yeah, yeah, sir, yeah. Mr. Uh, witch, <laughs> witch finder general. Uh, hello, sorry. Yes. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Are they still connected to me? Or you're are they witch. like off of Don't me? Qu- and now that you're, what's, oh, oh no, no, I'm not Don't a question, you're a witch. <laughs> <laughs> there is a full production of this you can find on YouTube. I watched that opening number. And as soon as the Grand Inquisitor was done, it was almost like people were prodded to applaud. It was oh. like that sarcastic clapping, like, yeah, mm. way to be, way to be. How long is this? Three hours later, the curtain drops. Oh, and probably my favorite, the executioner <laughs> is a main character <laughs> and gets, oh God, Laurel. Is he singing like, a ballad? Is he no. Like a little like, oh, okay. He sings this <laughs> absurd song about, how much fun he has being able to kill people on a daily basis as part of his job for the government. Yikes, dude. (laughs) And it's it's kind of in the vein (laughs) of like Swedish death metal in a way. Okay, yeah. Oh my God. Oh, anyway. (laughs) Which which closed after 10 weeks. I can't imagine why. I can't imagine that. Oh, okay. Oh. Next. Sweet baby Jesus. Okay. (laughs) The Fields of Ambrosia. Sounds nice. (laughs) Another musical. 
It's based on the 1971 film, The Traveling Executioner, a black comedy. I kind of feel like that's like a, a departure of titles there. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, What's oh, the opposite of what we could maybe name this? Oh, Fields lovely, of Ambrosia. Fields of Ambrosia. <laughs> oh, you'll, you'll, you'll hear why in just a moment. In the vein of The Music Man or Leap of Faith, a charming huckster tries to sell his wares to an unsuspecting small town of otherwise gullible folks. So, you know, it's kind of a fairly standard plot line. We've heard this before. Oh boy, here we go. <sighs> Set in the rural South in the summer of 1918, the story follows Jonas Candide, a traveling salesman selling his portable electric chair to prisons across the country. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the title comes from what Jonas claims is a gentler ride for the prisoner to be sent to, quote, the fields of ambrosia, otherwise known as the afterlife. Oh, yuck. <laughs> and I hate, and I hate that I'm envisioning <laughs> him walking down the road. I don't know why it's not like on a, a cart or something that makes more sense, but I'm picturing him actually wheeling it kind of like a wheelchair and like he's just rickshaw. going down the road. Yeah. And it's just going, <laughs> eek, eek. <laughs> it's like the, and I hate that. I'm like, oh, oh it's, it's the, the greatest thing you've ever seen. It's the greatest <laughs> thing you've ever seen. You sit on it and you ride to the fields of Ambrosia is a lot less painful. Oh, okay. So <laughs> we're going to hit just some basic plot points here. Obviously, the uh, J- young Jonas Candide falls in love with a love. woman on death row. Ugh. And the plot after that becomes kind of like a uh, almost like a cannonball run like we're gonna break this person out of jail and somehow <laughs> uh one way he's figured out to do it is if he injects her with a certain certain injection and gives her a small dose of his electric chair she'll be knocked out and seem dead very similar to juliet romeo and juliet i've seen this before yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> But he'll he'll be able to bring her back to life. And there's this great scene, Laurel, where to demonstrate this, Jonas goes, look, I can do it on a rat. And so he puts a rat on the chair, shocks it, the rat dies. He takes the rat by the tail, chucks it into a garbage can over on the side of the stage. And then all of a sudden, the garbage can falls over a couple minutes later, and the rat runs out. Oh, my God, it worked. On the uh. West End, Laurel, when they did this, they had a remote control rat in the garbage can that was about three times the size of the rat that flew into it. Not only is it alive, but it's grown. Oh. It's like a Franken, Frankenstein rat. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, oh, and I mentioned this is in a, 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 a prison in the rural South, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, Jonas Candide gets into the prison at some point and he's going to break his girlfriend out, but he gets captured by some prisoners and gang raped by them right afterwards sings a song titled if it ain't one thing it's another i don't (laughs) what this is absolutely batshit crazy like batshit bonkers just mm -hmm. yep here's a review from variety (sighs) The show's final image shows its principles united happily in the sweet afterlife represented by the Ambrosian fields. 
it's because they got caught in a fire started by his fucking electric chair. But the moment merely nails the lid on an evening consisting of one kitsch classic after another. Joel Higgins, who plays the lead and also wrote the book and lyrics, is hardworking and charmless in equal measure. So too are the lyrics. Here's one. The fields of ambrosia where everybody knows you. Stop it. Oh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get done with the review. Here we go. Oh. The lyrics are set to music so deafeningly amplified and dully orchestrated by Harold Wheeler that it is virtually impossible to assess a score disguised as a screamathon. Uh, I, I can't. I can't. <laughs> I, um, yeah, no, no, no words are coming to me right yeah, now. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm like really uh, trying to like be like, hey, here's my two cents on how I feel about uh, that. Yeah. And I just, I'm gobsmacked. The Fields of Ambrosia closed after 23 performances. <laughs> Why? Um, now, here's just kind of an interesting little historical bit that's that's fascinating to the, the history wonks out there. Uh, so this played at the Aldwych Theater on, on the West End. And the Aldwych used to be a big playhouse, meaning like non-musicals. So huge dramas were there. Like uh, uh, Vivian Lee did a uh, streetcar named Desire there. Um, oh yeah okay uh maggie smith dame maggie smith was lady bracknell in importance of being earnest there i mean it's oh. it's been a huge one and then because of the scheduling and because someone paid for it up front they're like let's throw this musical in this house which is known to be a playhouse and it opened in january 1996 which is a terrible terrible time to open a play because it's just after christmas it's just like what yeah. used to happen in the cinema. Like you'd have all of your Oscar winners at the end of the year. And then January is just, well, we peeled this shitty script from the bottom of the barrel and <laughs> we've got to put something in the theaters so people can go buy tickets. That's pretty much what it is. So yeah, there was no chance for Fields of Ambrosia anyway, despite what it actually is. <laughs> Flaming dog shit. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, electrified dog shit. I mean, what, where do we want to go with that? And, I don't know. And, but, oh, oh, God. And, and, and it just, it goes back to that thing where somebody saw in this a charming piece that would last the test of time. See, that's the thing. Like, <laughs> I understand like, that this is the topic that we are discussing, but I think if even removed out of me knowing that these are duds and someone was like, Laurel, here we go. Here's the the plot for this. Bloody 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 blue. There it is. I'd be like, I I don't. I'm sorry. I fail to see how that's. Um, I have, I have some questions. I have some thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there'd be something where that just it just doesn't make sense. That's great. I have some notes. Uh... <laughs> Can we uh, just change a few things up? Like uh-huh. you know, all yeah. of it. I don't know. Well, <laughs> if we're already here. I can't wait to see how you do with the next two. <laughs> like, I already don't know what I'm, what to do with my hands. I think every time uh-huh. you looked up, I'm like, doing a Vogue or something. Something like, different on your face. Like, I just, uh, yeah. Like, where can I go to make the world sane again? Okay. Here's one that hit Broadway called In My Life. So Laurel, I want to take a moment to introduce you to Joseph Brooks. Okay. 
Joseph Brooks was a musician who gained a considerable wealth. I mean, he's independently wealthy based on writing commercial jingles, most notably for Pepsi and Maxwell House. Like the good to the last drop, that's him, Mm -hmm. you know? Okay. And during the 70s, he used this wealth to get into writing scores for movie and eventually made the film You Light Up My Life. Remember that, that 70s song? You I know, yeah, I definitely life? know the song. Okay. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's Joseph Brooks. Okay. He directed and produced the movie as well as writing the script and composing the score. And the film won the Oscar for the best song that year. And that's the one that Debbie Boone does, right? Okay. Oh, well done you, Joseph. Okay. Right. Yeah. Now, after lots of successful music projects for film through the 70s and 80s, Brooks was invited to write the music for a musical adaptation of Fritz Lang's iconic sci-fi masterpiece, Metropolis. Oh. So let's take that. Okay. Take the guy who wrote, You Light Up My Life, (laughs) and make a musical out of it. (laughs) Obviously, the show tanked. It tanked hard. It was big. Like, like but not as big as the ones on this list. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds so expensive too. Mm -hmm. But Brooks still had the theater bug and he independently funded, wrote, composed the score, directed a new musical called In My Life. And I don't even want to summarize the script. I'm going to go ahead and let this review from Theater Mania say it for me. It's kind of longer, but here we go. Some people insist there are certain subjects that shouldn't be turned into musicals, but I disagree. I think it's completely within the realm of possibility that a stunning tuner could be created about a protagonist with Tourette's syndrome. Oh, shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Who meets a young village voice employee who may be suffering from obsessive compulsive disorder and successfully dates her despite his occasional obscene outbursts and sudden tremors. Yes, I'm sure that a great show could be written in which the Tourette's afflicted major figure who has also lost his mother and 12-year-old sister in a freak traffic accident and having fallen in love with the voice, this OCD voice uh, personal listing staffer, discovers that he's got a life-threatening brain tumor. This doesn't sound heavy at all. No, no. I'm convinced that a simultaneously entertaining and enlightening song and dance piece might be crafted wherein the Tourette's fellow's fortunes are in the hands of a couple of celestial figures caught between the pole of operatic tragedy and music hall comedy, end quote. What? <laughs> <laughs> so, so here's what happens. You've, you've got a guy with Tourette's, meets a woman who runs the personals desk at the Village Voice. She's got OCD. They fall in love or start dating and get romantic. Somebody from the heavens views this strange coupling and uses it to determine what makes things tragic and what makes things fun, like in a musical. One of the big things about the boy with Tourette's, when he gets excited and he's happy, he shouts the word lemon. (laughs) Okay. And the play ends with a gigantic lemon suspended over the stage. Oh. Um. <laughs> I have some notes. <laughs> Can you 
maybe Ixnay the Lemon Emily. So it went straight to Broadway in previews on September 30th, 2005, and premiered on October 20th, 2005. It closed on December 11th, 2005, not even two months in. Oh, no. Seating capacity never averaged above 50% of any week of its run. Oh, that's rough. Extra rough. <laughs> I include this in this list of shows for a couple of reasons. And one of them is because nobody understood what this play was supposed to be. <laughs> I don't even think Joseph Banks understood what it was supposed to be. Brooks. I don't think let's Brooks just, understood what, yeah. Let's just add the heavens in there just because I don't even know what the hell's going on anymore. Yeah. Let's just... and, and, and it opened at a terrible time for a show to open on Broadway. Very similar to what happened with Fields of Ambrosia. It opened in like the late September, early October thing, right after the summer tourism season is over. So it's like, okay, oh, yeah. we're just going to fill something in here and see if it works. Plus, the guy had the money up front. So they're like, yeah, okay, at the end of the day, we'll probably be fine. Okay. I also include this because of Joseph Brooks' epilogue. <laughs> oh, dear. At age 71, in June 2009, Joseph Brooks was indicted on 91 accounts of a whole laundry list of sex crimes. Basically, <laughs> oh, I, wish, no. I wish my listeners could have heard your jaw just hit the floor. Oh, yeah. I, I'm literally um, actually holding onto the bottom of my face because I'm like, I don't um, oh. So Joseph Brooks put out an ad in Craigslist and he shot it all over the country. And he's like, young women, I'll make you famous. Uh -oh. And the ones that would answer were replied to by his female assistant, who was like his personal assistant. And she'd arrange the travel arrangements and, you know, get him to his house where he would sexually assault them. Oh, 91 no. counts, 91 counts. Uh, Joseph Brooks was found dead in his apartment before the trial could begin. A friend was coming to have lunch with him, and they found him sat up in his recliner with a towel wrapped around his head and a paper bag or a, a plastic bag over his head, taped off at the bottom, and a hose running from a helium tank into the bag. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! That took planning, man. I mean, that took planning. That was very elaborate. And I'm also taking back my good for you, Joseph, for winning the Oscar. I'm, I'm snatching that comment back out of no, yep. you can't Here have that, nope. you piece of shit. All right. You've been canceled. We, uh, this, is, this is the good side of cancel culture, you know? Yes, um, yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, here's another interesting note before we move on. Uh, Brooke's son is also now serving a sentence for murdering his girlfriend, who was a swimwear model. Maybe, maybe let's not let that family out anywhere. Let's keep, <laughs> let's keep them contained. Don't let them out. Don't let them near women or anybody. They and sound like the final note garbage. on this. I think the 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 character in in my life that was supposed to be the Tourette's kid was modeled after his son. Oh. oh. So in my life, gross. if any, if anybody buys so tickets to that, shame on you. Shame on yeah, you. Yeah, don't don't buy tickets, people. <laughs> Okay, I think I found the championship here. This is really something. And from a historical perspective, you'll, you'll really appreciate this because it didn't just affect a stage or a play or a couple of producers. 
this literally affected the well-being of an entire country. Oh. I'm sure you haven't heard of it. Leonardo the Musical, A Portrait of Love. No. Okay. That's a new one for me. (laughs) From a very trusted source, quote, this is the only musical in the history of the West End to be funded completely on bird shit. (laughs) (laughs) Literal or figurative? I mean... (laughs) Completely, literally, and I'm not even kidding. Here we go. We've had so many surprises, I had to ask. Hey, Laurel, have you ever heard of the Republic of Nauru? N-A-U-R-U? I have to say no, except my brain is like, yes. Eh, That sounds familiar, okay. Yeah. It's a small island nation in the South Pacific, population of just over 10,000 people, square mileage about 8.1 square miles. Oh, wow. Primary export? Phosphate for agricultural purposes, basically fertilizer. Where do they get it? Nauru is basically a nice stopping point for island hopping seagulls to take a dump. Years and years of stratified gull shit, or more politely, guano, allowed Nauru to be wealthy in proportion to Saudi Arabia. Holy hell. (laughs) What? What is Nauru? Oh, goodness. Good job. Okay. Nauru gained its independence in 1968. And once it did, it's like, hey, we got a lot of shit we can uh, market here. So let's get busy. They got full into phosphate mining, extraction, and trade. And after its boom in the 1970s, where I think I looked this up and I really don't understand economics, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it this way. The gross domestic product per capita meant that every person had a wealth of about $50,000 in the mid-1970s, which is equivalent to $2 million today. Mm -hmm. So to put that in perspective, today, the U.S. gross domestic product is like $24.09 trillion, which would allow everyone in America to have like a relative wealth of around $68,000. So for every citizen in the Rue to be eligible for up to $2 million. Yeah, I mean, good, good for you guys. That bird shit went a long way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, after its boom in the 1970s, Nauru and phosphate exports decreased exponentially, so the economy struggled through the 80s and 90s. So the Nauruan government looked for a lot of other ways to generate wealth, including being a tax haven for the super rich to set up offshore accounts. Hmm. This also included a lot of organized crime. Oh, no. I can't even tell you how many millions of dirty Russian mob money went through Nauru. Oh, yeah. Um, Now, I could really get into it because the history of Nauru after the boom in the 1970s, it it tracks in the same direction that like Tony Montana did in Scarface. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they had everything set up around them. They had everything they needed, but life on Nauru became basically unsustainable. Okay. People only lived on the coast because the inland had been mined so heavily for the phosphate droppings that the terrain was basically uninhabitable. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, Oh, God. Enter Duke Minx. That's fake. That's a fake name. (laughs) That's a real name of an actual human. Duke Minx. Minx. That sounds like an adult (laughs) film name. That's 
That's not real. So like the alter ego of like a a super villain from like Green Lantern or something. Which is like cat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Naru, it looks like you're in quite a spot. Now, Minx was a banker way high up with Citibank in Australia. And Naru was one of their major clients. Minx has a bit of an interesting history, though. He used to be the road manager for an Australian one-hit wonder boy band in the 1960s called Unit 4 Plus 2, which is why I sent you the song Concrete And it's such a good song, too. You're like, you sent it, and I was like, oh, okay, what's going on with my shoulders here? Okay, this is this is a fun little ditty. It's a little bop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Apparently with Concrete and Clay, they knocked the Rolling Stones off of the charts for one week with that tune in 1960. No way. Minks remained good friends with Tommy and Greg Moeller, the musicians in Unit 4 Plus 2. Minks and the Moellers had developed a really swell idea to write a musical based on one of the most influential people in Western history, Leonardo da Vinci. Okay. Okay. So here we are, early 90s. We've seen Les Miserables. We've seen Cats, we've seen Phantom of the Opera, we've seen Miss Saigon, all these huge musicals with great big ideas that they're like, okay, I've got one more. Let's capitalize on this big name and see what we can do with it. It's a pretty simple plot. It was a love triangle between Leonardo, the Mona Lisa, and some soldier that the Mona Lisa was betrothed to, but didn't like very well because he was kind of abusive. The Mona Lisa, like the painting or the woman that was Mona the, Lisa? The woman, the woman in, the, in the Mona Lisa, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, because mm-hmm. I, I was worried that like he would come up and see the painting. He was like, I think this is an amazing painting. And she's looking with her moving <laughs> eyes all the time. And she goes, that guy, that guy. That I guy. am in love, Not- but I can't step out of my painting. Uh, okay, the actual woman. <laughs> Leonardo takes his painting to a priest and goes, she's the one. <laughs> I've painted the perfect woman. All right. (laughs) If you know anything about the life of Leonardo, you know, this is pretty preposterous because already there is so little information about the private life of Leonardo. And at one point he was accused of sodomy along with three other men and a male prostitute, but there was so little evidence that the case got thrown out. But of course you might've heard it at some point along the line. There are a lot of suspicions that he was gay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So for him to be in a love triangle with a woman and the guy, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and even one of the guys who wrote it, I think it was one of the molars. He's like, yeah, we took a little autistic license. <laughs> oh, saying, oh, really? You don't uh-huh. say, you know, saying who says that? <laughs> in any case, Minks and the molars thought that having an idea for a musical, never having done one or really been a part of one, they can make this one fly in one of the biggest commercial theater markets in the world. Oh, wow. I mean, okay, yeah. <laughs> but they needed money and a lot of it. And from a source that was looking to re-legitimize itself on the world stage. Oh, Duke Meeks has an idea. He'll ask the nation of Nauru to fund the development and run of their production. Oh, (laughs) this can't go wrong at all. Like he is like, oh, oh Mm -hmm. no. So here's a quote from Tommy Moeller of the Unit 4 Plus 2. Duke was so well in with the Nauruans, and because Nauru was famous for bird droppings, I thought maybe they'd like to brighten their profile with a musical about one of the greatest brains of all time, Leonardo da Vinci, end quote. Oh. 
I mean, that would be a good idea. Okay. Okay. All right. Thus, Leonardo the Musical, A Portrait of Love, was put into development with eyes on opening in London's West End, led by showrunners who had never done a musical before, much less one of such scale. (sighs) Now, if you've listened to my episodes before, it's actually pretty rare that pure genius alone can make a musical succeed. Quite often, it takes the careful study of what has come before and the ability to be a self-critic and understand your own assets. So you go, like... Jonathan Larson, when he wrote Rent, he goes, okay, I see what Rodgers and Hammerstein did. I see what Andrew Lloyd Webber did. I see what Howard Ashman and Alan Menken did. How can I take what they did and apply it to myself? What can I do that goes that far? Right. Okay. Brilliant. Lin-Manuel Miranda does the same thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Basically, (laughs) for this show, the only assets that were of concern were who's going to cover the check? (laughs) This island here, like let's let the whole island just sign one of those Uh big ass cardboard checks. Oh my god! (laughs) Oh my god! The Nauruan government was utterly charmed by the idea. It was a show about one of the most well-known names in history, and it was going to fund some art going into the world that would improve Nauruan relations with the world, right? Full steam ahead. Oh, my heart hurts. (laughs) (laughs) These poor people. You've just been hoodwinked sort of oh yeah oh the people were furious they were like you've got to be kidding me we have you have legitimized business with with crime lords all over the world and you now you want to put money into a musical the people were livid not only that uh, uh when they had their boom they just basically gave government services to everybody so nobody had to work and uh they didn't really have great sources for processing food and everything so nauru became one of the most obese and most diabetic countries on earth but you know Uh-oh. whatever anyway <clears throat> okay while workshopping in london they scheduled an enormous gala just for the Nauruan government to see how far they'd come, followed by an enormous party. At the party, most everyone could see the writing on the wall. This show wasn't very good at all. Uh-oh. But not really knowing too much about the theater business, the Nauruan dignitaries in attendance seemed to love it, plopped down enough money right then and there to get the production funded for a West End world premiere. So you saying that big cardboard oh. check? That happened. <laughs> I just, oh, it, it's, yeah, mm-hmm. I have no words. I mentioned that the people, the, the citizens of Nauru were pissed off about this. So much so that when the play premiered in London, the citizens of Nauru gathered at the airport and did everything they could to prevent the plane carrying 100 of the nation's most air quotes important people, including the president, from taking off. Oh. The plane finally got off the ground, though, and the party made it for opening night. <laughs> oh, well, that's, there's that. That's fine. That's fine. They made it. When you have all the people, they're like, no, don't go. Don't do it. No, Mr. President, don't go. No. And they're like, no, it's fine. We got to we gotta hurry. We're going to miss our party. We're going to miss Carton. Uh, yeah. Like, look, they came oh, to celebrate. No. Oh. Here's a quote from a review. Art historians in the audience may have felt queasy midway through Act One when Leonardo da Vinci slapped the Mona Lisa on the bum and asked her to, quote, help me with my research. Oh, oh no. (laughs) Taking a person who basically invented flight, uh, discovered perspective. uh, You know, how many inventions did Leonardo get? But I guess 
his uh, romantic inclinations were not as refined. Continuing the quote. But His Excellency President Bernard Doiogo of the Republic of Naryu and First Lady Madame Christina Doiogo beamed Doiogo. Yeah. The Chief Secretary to the government hummed along and the Chief Justice shot warning glances at the critics. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. In today's money, the island nation of Nauru lost $7 million on Leonardo. It didn't really deplete the wealth of the nation as much as other decisions the nation had made since winning its independence in 1968, but it didn't help either. Yeah. Today, Nauru is no closer to getting out of its economic hardships than when it first sponsored Duke Minks to put on a play with the hopes of touring the world. Uh, Fuck you, Duke Minks. (laughs) And that, Laurel is the story of Colossal Flops. Oh, I mean, (laughs) bravo, but also, (laughs) I just, (laughs) gosh, I just, I mean, the oh no's don't cover it. Like I just kept going, oh no, oh, oh no. And it got more, oh no, it got more shaky. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like I had a hard time putting this one together. Like I I, I just keep kept finding, finding these shows and going, okay, well, I'll put this one here. And then I'm like, no, no, this has to be an escalation. Okay, we'll start with a couple that like they ended poorly and didn't didn't play well. Then we'll do one where it's like it's infamous for being the worst play on Broadway ever. Then we'll come up with these ideas that were like, who in the hell would ever think this is entertaining? Ugh. And let's go ahead and bankrupt a government. <laughs> I yeah, I, I kept thinking like throughout that were the people of Nauru were they like hoodwinked into this like you know were they were they kind of like tricked into doing this because they didn't have the understanding of it's not like they had you know lots of theater under their belt or were they like oh no like was duke minks a total garbage human i guess is really what i'm trying to ask (laughs) i i no uh, i will say i think he was just so optimistic about its chances he just needed to fund it okay Okay. You know, he's he was originally from the UK, moved to Australia. Um, when he was done with the entertainment industry, he stayed friends with them, but he got into banking and got mm-hmm. so high up in banking that he's controlling the accounts of island nations and one of the most wealthy <laughs> island nations or nations in history. So I, I just think he went, oh, I got an idea. Yeah. They, <laughs> and, yeah. And, okay. They might, okay. They might put some money into this. It would be great. And then we'll tell Leonardo. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Just the audacity. Yeah. Like some of the, some of, like there are people like, you know, I, I love hearing filmmakers today who have a hundred scripts in their drawer. And they're like, I don't know which one of these is going to be the one to make it. And it's right. always a surprise, whatever it is, you know. Like, I don't think Quentin Tarantino thought Pulp Fiction was going to be the thing that was going to get him an Oscar. He's right. like, I know I got a damn good movie here. I just, I, I, I'm going to put it out there and see what it does. And for some reason, it, it plucked the heartstrings of the zeitgeist, and now it is cemented in cinema history. Right. Every one of these guys thought that, too. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I mean, at least, you know, uh, at least out of any of these, at least Noel Coward 
kind of ended up with some success at the end. <laughs> <laughs> He's real proud of it. That's for sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there we go. Colossal flops. Colossal Whew. flops. Wow. Man. An adventure for my body <laughs> that, and my emotions. That's what that was. I was just, I feel like I've done a lot of moving and I was just yeah. moving just my arms. It was all just yeah. the different, oh no. Uh, yep. Yep. And there were plenty of them and there were plenty of pitfalls and perils. And, you know, it's one of those things where you hear about all of that stuff leading up to it. And there's a, a, a phrase I love in studying theater history. It's called dramatic irony. <laughs> it's the moment where you as an audience member see that the protagonist is going down the wrong path and the protagonist doesn't get it. They don't have that sense of irony. We have that sense of irony. We're like, oh my God, this is the moment where you could have turned everything around. And going through every one of these stories, <laughs> I just go at some point, could the Nauruan president have gone, you know, I don't think this is the best investment for us. Yeah. Or <laughs> could somebody have gone, the show is about a traveling electric chair? Yeah. It, things like that where I, and I try to <laughs> remove myself from that I'm like I'm hearing this and I know ahead of time that it's a flop again I have that dramatic mm-hmm. irony there listening to these stories but I was going but this still doesn't sound like a good idea like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm I no mean, producer even, however <laughs> even Ivor Novello in Soraka was going you know it, it, this probably isn't going to work out we probably shouldn't do this and Coward's like come on <laughs> To the point where the deaf director thought they were cheering. Oh no. Oh boy. Well, oh, there we go. Laurel, you feeling okay? You're gonna be able to sleep well tonight? I'm gonna, yeah. Well, I feel like I've done a, like a, a workout of some sort, you know. <laughs> <laughs> sleep like a baby. There you go. Maybe maybe that personal training is coming back and we'll go, we'll do some laugh therapy. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. Keep up with your podcast. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you for being on the show tonight. I really appreciate it. Oh my gosh, we've got so much out of this one. Uh, but for my listeners, I'm going to go ahead and sign off. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, ending another episode of Euripides Amenities, a theater history podcast. I'll be back to you in another two weeks, and I will see you at intermission. <laughs>